thank you for, for, for coming. Um, well, welcome to the anti-inauguration. Um, My name is Bhaskar Sankara. I'm the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin, and we're here with our we're here with our co-sponsors uh, at Haymarket Books and Verso Books, and we're we're thrilled to present an incredible lineup tonight. This is our our A list. This is like the first like few people we asked all said yes. So. Uh, and I would tell you otherwise, and it'd be kind of embarrassing, but you know. <laughs> um, I want to get to our speakers as quickly as possible, but just a few bits of housekeeping first. Um, please turn off your NSA listening device. If uh, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump want to hear what we're saying, they'll have to watch the live stream on, if you want to tell your friends, facebook.com slash Jacobinmag, um, like the rest of us. Um, and we're here at the um, historic Lincoln Theater, and we couldn't be more grateful. They've, they've you know, allowed us to host this event here. And uh, thanks in, in uh, particular to Rosanna and to um, a lot of the other staff who have been working you know, very hard to put on this event. We are, I believe, passing around collection boxes. Uh, we tried to make the event uh, free and accessible to everyone, so if you're able, please do contribute. Um, you know, our, our um, speakers have also graciously agreed to remain after the event to sign copies of their books, which could be uh, purchased at the tables in the front. Um, you know, it's been you know a long day for everyone, so you know the speakers can't stay for long. So just around 20 minutes or so after the event. So please understand if they can't get to to all of them. Um, and you know, obviously today is not a very you know happy day. You know, it's the start of the Trump administration, um, which you know. I'm sorry to break it to you if you if you don't. Um, but but I, I think one of the reasons why we're here is because Trump doesn't actually have a mandate. You know, he was the third choice of voters and, and most of them weren't happy with any of the options that were really on offer to them. So I think we're here to really try to build um, an alternative. And tonight is, is you know, it's, it's about that. And the quarter million people, uh, plus maybe, who, should, who will be uh, marching tomorrow is about that too. Um, so we need, you know, more than ever, I think. A movement with both vibrant politics and and ideas. <coughs> so you might say this introduction is pretty pedestrian, but I actually am sick, so this is like the Jordan flu games of of event introductions. Uh, but uh, so you know, we couldn't have a better group of people to start this conversation, and I'm going to introduce them in in uh, turn. And uh, first up is Naomi Klein. And Naomi is award-winning journalist, a syndicated columnist, and the author of international bestsellers like No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and most recently, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. And um, you know, there was also a documentary inspired by this book that was uh, narrated by Naomi and prepared, um, premiered at the Tor Toronto International Film Festival. 
She's also a member of the board of directors for 530.org, a global grassroots movement to, uh, to solve the climate crisis, and she's a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Nation Institute. She is also, as if that wasn't enough, also one of the forces behind Canada's Leap Manifesto, a blueprint for rapid and, rapid and justice-based transition off fossil fuels. And this is a real honor because part of my early formative politicization involved, among other things, searching around my library, uh, my public library, which, you know, I, which once existed throughout the, the nation. Um, reading No Logo and others of uh, Naomi's uh, work, so this is a real honor, and Naomi will join us now. Hey, you guys. Hi. My God. Thank you, Raskar. Thank you for that introduction. It's so great to be here. Um, you know, one of my missions is to try to get um, the left more engaged with climate. Um, and I have, yes, it is an existential crisis. Um, and it puts us on a firm and unyielding science-based deadline and says that we must change this system that is failing us on so many levels. Um, so it's not 530.org, it's 350.org. <laughs> and, um, and a shout out to all my friends in the climate movement out there. Um, incredible work today in the climate block and so many of the blocks shutting down checkpoints. Um, Black Lives Matter locking down. What a day. Yeah. So we don't come together just feeling defeated, right? Um, this was a powerful day, and we are going to build on that. I would love to be able to see some of your faces. Um, so if anybody can hear me, just like bring up the house lights like a tiny bit here. Um, it would be good to, to see each other. So, okay, let's pause um, to recognize what happened um, just now. Um, okay, so the people who already possess an absolutely obscene share of the planet's wealth and whose share grows greater year after year, latest count, eight guys worth half the world, are determined to grab still more. The key figures populating Trump's cabinet are not only the ultra-rich, we know that, and frankly that's not such a big change, but they appear to have been selected on the basis of having made their money knowingly causing maximum harm to the most vulnerable people on the planet. That appears to be like a job requirement for entering. Um, so these aren't just like uber capitalists, these are like the really, really junky junk capitalists, okay? There's junk banker Steve Mnuchin, Trump's pick for, sec for Treasury Secretary, whose lawless foreclosure machine, as it's called, kicked tens of thousands of people out of their homes, many of them people of color, the most vulnerable people in the United States, and from junk mortgages to junk food, there's Trump's pick for Labor Secretary, Andrew Puzder. So as CEO of his fast food empire, it wasn't enough to pay workers an abusive, non-livable wage. 
Uh, he also stands accused, his company stands accused in several lawsuits of stealing workers' labor by failing to pay them even those unacceptable wages for the work they did, for the overtime they worked. So moving from junk food to junk science, there's Trump's pick for Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. Um, <laughs> So, Exxon, the company he worked for for his entire life, um, his entire adult life, bankrolled and amplified garbage science and lobbied fiercely against meaningful international climate action behind the scenes. And in no small part, because of these efforts, the world lost decades when we should have been kicking our fossil fuel habit, made the climate crisis much, much worse, and because of that, countless people on this planet are already losing their homes to storms and rising seas, already losing their lives in heat waves and droughts, and countless millions will ultimately see their homelands and countries disappear beneath the waves because of the climate change we've locked in. And as usual, the people impacted Worst and first are the poorest, overwhelmingly black and brown people around the world who did the least to create this crisis. Stolen homes, stolen wages, stolen cultures, stolen countries, all immoral, all extremely profitable. And it is precisely because of these actions, because they have been so extreme, so brazen, that this gang and the sectors that they represent were actually very worried about their respective parties coming to an end. To put it bluntly, they were worried about the rising power of our movements. And you know, this is worth thinking about on a day like today, that bankers like Steve Mnuchin remember the 2008 financial collapse and the open talk of nationalizing the banks. They witnessed the rise of Occupy Wall Street and then the resonance of Bernie Sanders' campaign with its central anti-bank message attracting 13 million votes. And service sector bosses like Andrew Puzder are terrified of the rising power of the fight for 15, which has been winning victories in cities and states across the country. And had Bernie won, that campaign would have had a champion in the White House. They came that close, right? Imagine how frightening this is to a sector that relies on exploitation so centrally to keep prices down and profits up. And no one has more reason to fear ascendant social movements than good old Rex Tillerson. Because of the rising power of the global climate justice movement, Exxon is under fire on every front. Pipelines carrying its oil are being blocked, not only here in the US, but around the world. Divestment campaigns, sorry, I'm dropping things. Divestment campaigns are spreading like wildfire on campuses and cities, causing market uncertainty. And over the past year, Exxon's various deceptions have come under investigations by the SEC and by multiple state attorneys general. And make no mistake, the threat, to, that the threat to Exxon posed by meaningful climate action is an existential threat. The temperature targets that are laid out in the Paris climate deal negotiated last year are wholly incompatible with burning the carbon 
that Exxon has in its proven reserves. And that's how a company like Exxon is uh, valued on the market. And they were facing increasingly vocal questions from their shareholders, asking them about the longevity of their business model and if they were in fact not going to be stranded with a whole bunch of useless, unburnable carbon assets. So this is the backdrop of today's events. We were starting to win. We have to know this. We have to understand this because everything we're going to experience in the coming days and weeks is going to be expressly designed to make us feel powerless, okay? So I'm not saying that our movements were strong enough. They weren't. I'm not saying that we were united enough. We weren't. But something was shifting. Something was happening. And so we need to see this new U.S. administration for what it is corporate coup d'etat, rather than risk the possibility <laughs> rather than risk the possibility of further progress, this gang of fossil fuel mouthpieces and bankers have come together to take over the government to protect their ill-gotten wealth. Of course Trump won't sell his businesses or do a thing to untangle that web of conflicts of interest. Of course his appointees aren't doing it either. Steve Mnuchin lost track of $100 million. What is happening under our noses is not a transition. It is a takeover of the federal government by corporate America, the ultimate privatization, neoliberalism's final frontier, right? They've been buying off and selling off the state in bits and pieces, and now they're just going for the whole thing. So what are we going to do about it? We always remember their weaknesses, right? Even as they exercise raw power, we remember that a majority of Americans did not vote for Trump. 40% stayed home, and of the people who voted, a clear majority voted for Clinton. He won within a very rigged system. And even within that rigged system, he didn't actually win it. Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party establishment lost it. He didn't... This is, this is just numbers, right? This is just numbers. He did not have those overwhelming numbers. Um, it was the depressed numbers on the Democratic side compared with previous elections that were responsible for this outcome. And this needs to be said because we are in this moment, right, where everybody's talking about unity, right? And I think unity is important, but we can't let unity be used as some kind of weapon to silence these truths. We need to learn. The Democrats didn't think campaigning on tangible improvements in people's lives was important. They had virtually nothing to offer to people whose lives had been net decimated by neoliberal attacks. They thought they could run on fear alone of Trump, and it didn't work, okay? So before I uh, get into what we're going to do about it, um, I want to talk a little bit about shock. Um, as you know, it's, it's a preoccupation of mine. Um, 
And I, you know, I think a lot of people describe how they feel, how they, how they've been feeling since the election as being in a state of shock, right? And it's important to understand what that means, right? Shock is—it's um, not about something bad happening. It's about something ha bad happening that we don't yet have a narrative to explain, right? The shock is the disorientation, um, and, um, and and so th this didn't fit the narrative of of what a lot of people thought was going to happen, and so. There was, there's that destabilization that happens that makes us vulnerable to somebody coming in and going, well, this is why, and this is the story, right? Um, and, and, uh, but, but the scary thing is, right, that we haven't seen anything yet uh, of, of the shocks these guys are capable of. I think just from what we've seen today, with the speed with which um, they've acted, you know, putting, uh, taking down uh, um, the civil rights page and replacing it with a page about uh, defending the police, right? Uh, 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 which is clearly an attack on Black Lives Matter. Taking down the climate change page and all the references to climate change and putting up a page about how they're going to be drilling, you know, everywhere for more oil. Um, and then, you know, we're hearing a, a, about the prospect of this shock and awe budget, right? Um, which some people are calling a skinny budget, which is like an alt-right rebranding thing. It isn't a skinny budget. It is a savage budget. It is about cutting $10 trillion over 10 years. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the strategy of this kind of attack, right, of coming at everybody all at once, is to continue this feeling of destabilization. Right? That no one's, you're not, you're not supposed to ever find your footing, okay? That's why these spaces are really important. That's why finding each other is really important. Um, talking about what you're reading, sharing ideas, developing a narrative together, that is the way we resist shock. Um, it's something to remember, and I just remembered it today, is that, um, you know, the, when I wrote The Shock Doctrine, the sort of prototypical example of this strategy of exploiting crisis, really is Hurricane Katrina um, and how that shock uh, of, of that extreme weather event combined with the effects of neoliberalism combined with institutionalized racism was expertly exploited by the Republicans to wage war on the public sphere, to wage war on black people in New Orleans, um, and, uh, and also to, to open the door to more oil drilling. And the architect of that was Mike Pence. He was chairman of the Republican Study Committee at the time and hosted a meeting in this city at the offices of the Heritage Foundation. Um, and they came up with a list of 35, what they called them free market solutions to Hurricane Katrina. And you can go down that list and put a check mark next to almost every single one. So we need to know who we're dealing with. We need to know that they're going to be causing more shocks because they're deregulating the markets and that's the effect of it. They're going to make all kinds of enemies, and there's certainly going to be uh, there's certainly going to be blowback from that. Um, and of course, the climate change that they're denying is going to keep coming, but they're not going to learn from that. They're going to exploit it. So we need to have our own strategies. I think they don't understand that we're on to them, um, and that by coming coming after us all at once, they're actually not going to keep divide us and have us scrambling. They're going to unite us. Um, they're going to build. Yeah. We need to have each other's backs. Um, we need to resist 
as never before. There was one line in Trump's speech, actually, there's that dog's breakfast of a speech today that, that I actually liked. <laughs> now arrives the hour of action, I believe he said. I think we can appropriate that one. Um, but it is not enough to simply say no to these attacks, right? It's not enough because we know that where we are now before the attacks come is entirely unacceptable. The levels of inequality, the levels of racism, um, and, and the climate chaos that we've unleashed. We need radical system change, right? And so we, as we say no, we also have to be proposing. We also have to say yes. And so I think our task is to, is, is to find our footing, find our narrative, find the common threads that connect our movements. And that means, first and foremost, dropping this nonsense of pitting class against so-called identity politics and economic justice, against fighting racism and war, against climate change. We need you know, this, my issue trumps your issue, helps one thing, and that is Trump, <laughs> okay? We need to understand how our, all of our issues are interconnected and how our fates are intertwined, because they are. Nothing has done more to liberate our elites to build their corporate dystopia than the persistent and systemic pitting of working class whites against blacks and immigrants, men against women. White supremacy and misogyny are and always have been our elite's most potent defenses against a genuine left populist agenda and meaningful democracy. That's how they get the job done. So we need this agenda and we need solutions that also show that it is possible to radically cut our emissions while fighting economic inequality and bringing resources to communities of color that have been on the front lines of extraction and pollution and police violence. We can design policies like that and we can fight for them. And that's what we tried to do in Canada with Elite Manifesto and built a coalition of 220 organizations bringing trade unions together with the climate movement, with Black Lives Matter Toronto. And, um, you know, it's hard work, um, but it's it's, it's the only work that matters right now, is coming together. The Democratic Party needs to either be decisively wrestled from pro-corporate neoliberals or it needs to be abandoned. Our movements... with leaders and rich with ideas. So let's get out of shock right away and build the kind of radical movement that has a genuine answer to the hate and fear represented by the Trumps of this world. Let's set aside whatever is keeping us apart, be it our egos, our brands, whatever it is, and let's get started right now. Thank you.
because I forgot to mention it before, both of Naomi's uh, books are, are in the, the back. Um, our next speaker, uh, Manan Gopal, I've known for, for a little bit. I've known his writing for a long time. So I thought enough time to come up with, you know, an anecdote that was, um, you know, a little bit deprecating but also very endearing. Um, but I actually didn't, you know, I just wrote a placeholder note saying that anecdote. So, uh, but, um, but he's, he's a journalist and the author of No Good Men Among the Living, America the Taliban, and The War Through Afghan Eyes. His book was a finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize and also for the 2014 National Book Award. Uh, he served as an Afghanistan correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and the Christian Science Monitor and has reported on the Middle East and South Asia for Harper's, The Atlantic, The Nation, The New Republic, Foreign Policy, and other publications. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. Uh, as Bhaskar mentioned, I cover foreign policy, which uh, if you do that under or in a world in which Donald Trump exists, it means that every day uh, brings new absurdities. Uh, there's Russian hacking, of course. Uh, there's his Twitter account. There's golden showers at the Ritz-Carlton. Which, by the way, that's probably the first time that phrase has ever been uttered in the Lincoln Theater in its history. And so, um, there's a lot of bluster. There's a lot of bluster in what he says, okay? But if you actually pay attention to what Donald Trump was saying on the campaign trail, he was actually quite consistent. If you, if you cut past all the, the bluster and the idiocy and the and stupidity, there was actually a consistent message there, which is that Donald Trump says he's going to shift to an America first policy, which means getting rid of America's foreign entanglements. He was actually quite critical of the Iraq war. Um, he's been called in the media an isolationist president. And you can understand why that might appeal to people, particularly in, in some of the devastated working class communities in this country, places that had once voted for Obama and, and then went to Trump, like in the Rust Belt. You can understand why that might appeal, the idea of an isolationist president. Because, for example, right now the United States is at war in Afghanistan. It is year number 15 of this war. That makes it the longest war in American history. A single airstrike today in Afghanistan cost about a half a million dollars. A single airstrike. And yet here we're told that we don't have enough money for social services. A single year of the Afghan war cost $55 billion. $55 billion and we're told we don't have enough money for public education. Lockheed Martin is developing the F-35 fighter jet. And it's charging the US government $1.4 trillion to do so. Okay, that's $1.4 trillion to develop a jet. And we're told we don't have enough money for healthcare. And just by comparison, the, the entire Medicaid and Medicare budget last year was $1.2 trillion. Exactly. 
exactly. But you know, the thing is, you don't have to be a progressive to say that. For those of you who didn't hear, he said, fuck that. Um, <laughs> you don't have to be a progressive to say that. I think there's a, it, it's a, it's a widespread sentiment, even if you don't have that exact analysis, it's a widespread sentiment that there's something deeply wrong with America's role in the world. With the fact that it's been fighting two wars without an end in sight, costing billions of dollars and thousands of lives. And, and, but the truth is, despite that, Donald Trump is not an isolationist. Donald Trump's policy is America first, but his America is an America of CEOs. And I suspect, I would predict, that we're going to continue to see foreign entanglements, foreign interventions, the drone war, everything that we've been used to. I think we're going to continue to see that, okay? At the same time, Donald Trump does represent something new in the foreign policy establishment. So what I want to talk about today is what Trump represents and how we might be able to fight him. But to, to understand what Trump represents, we actually have to understand what it is when we say the foreign policy establishment. What is the foreign policy establishment? What is that? And another way of thinking about this is uh, there's a status quo in this country, and that's the way foreign policy is talked about. So what is that status quo? Uh, and so let's take a step back. Let's go back. Uh, let's take the issue of foreign intervention, okay? Going back 40 years, the United States lost the war in Vietnam, lost it spectacularly. And after it lost the war, uh, it, the ability of the U.S. to intervene in other countries to overthrow sovereign states was greatly constrained because of the way it lost the war. So the next two presidents, that's Carter and Reagan, they actually shifted away from open interventions towards indirect interventions, towards proxy wars. That, for example, was the war in Afghanistan that the, the U.S. funded the Mujahideen. It was also the, the wars in Central America. In the 1990s, George Bush and especially Bill Clinton tried to rehabilitate the idea of foreign intervention, of being able to go and intervene in countries and, and change the leaderships. Um, it was done under the guise of humanitarian intervention. But it really took 9-11 for the U.S. to once again openly invade countries and depo depose the states, and of course Iraq and Afghanistan. But like Vietnam, uh, those two wars failed spectacularly. So when Obama was elected, he shifted the pendulum back again, back towards proxy wars, back towards indirect interventions. So for example, under Obama's rule in Afghanistan, the number of militias, informal militias that are pay armed and paid by the United U.S. government increased exponentially to the point where today there's about, give or take, 100,000 men, armed men, who are being paid for by the U.S. state. Well, yes, we need to stop funding it, but the problem is, is that there's been a consensus on both sides of the aisle, from Democrats and Republicans. There's been a fundamental consensus, in fact, over the last 40 years, of the basic features of American power. That is, that the United States has a right to intervene where it wants, when it wants, even if that means militarily, even if that means overthrowing sovereign states. This has been a, a consensus, and when I say the foreign policy establishment, I mean that consensus. That is a consensus that has not been challenged by anybody in the two major parties. And what does that consensus look like? Well, if you look around the globe, there are 800 military bases, U.S. bases, in 70 countries. The U.S. has the largest nuclear stockpile that's ever been assembled. Uh, the U.S. defense budget is, is greater than the next eight countries combined. And if we're going to be honest and describe what that is, that's an empire. 
That's an empire that's probably the greatest empire that this planet has ever seen. And there's a remarkable consensus over the facts of that empire. And one of the, one of the things that drives this empire is to have spheres of influence. These days, especially after the end of the Cold War, the main reason for spheres of influence is for deregulation, for privatization, for the control of markets, to integrate areas into the American order. And I just want to read a quick quote from, from Jimmy Carter. Uh, this is this inaugurated what's now called the Carter Doctrine. This, is written, this was something he said in, in 1979 uh, after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. He said, the region which is now threatened by Soviet troops in Afghanistan is of great strategic importance. It contains more than two-thirds of the world's exportable oil. Any attempt by an outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interest of the United States of America. And such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. So the US decreed the Persian Gulf region as its sphere of influence, and any assault on that region would be met, would be met with force. The U.S. is not the only country that has a sphere of influence that is, that is um, building bases, et cetera. There are other countries that do this, Russia, China, et cetera. And there's competition between these major forces. And that competition is what drives American empire. It is what drives the building of all these bases. Okay? So everything I've just described, that is the status quo foreign policy that both parties have agreed upon for the last 40 years. Donald Trump represents, to a degree, a departure from that. And the reason is because Donald Trump represents, to an unprecedented degree, the corruption of the American state. And this is what Naomi meant when we talked about a corporate coup, okay? These are businessmen who are using the state as a vehicle to further their personal business interests. Rex Tillerson, can I, come on, can I get a boo here? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Rex Tillerson, uh, CEO of ExxonMobil, uh, has been accused of having ties with Russia. Of course he has ties with Russia because he was a CEO of ExxonMobil. Now he's a Secretary of State at the head of a state that is the enemy of Russia. And these are some of the contradictions we see. But it's only by understanding the fact that the American state has become so corrupted that it's a clique of businessmen that have taken it and are using it for their immediate business, business interest instead of for the long-term geostrategic imperial interests of the American empire, that we can understand how it is that a state can oppose Russia, but the head of state can be friendly with Russia. Okay? The point, though, of all this, the point of all this is to say that we are faced with two options, two choices. We are faced, on the one hand, with for the, the foreign policy status quo, which is, in other words, empire as usual. And we're faced, on the other hand, with the crony capitalism of Donald Trump. And we need to resist both. We need to resist both <laughs> empire and the crony capitalism. And I mentioned the word resistance because it's a word that's thrown, a lot, thrown around a lot these days. Um, I was on the way here on the radio, I heard that one of the ways to resist because Trump is attacking journalists is to subscribe to the Washington Post. <laughs> and um, so that's not resistance. Uh, so, you know, and what does resistance look like? You know, part of it is something that we have to actually discover. There's new strategies that we have to figure out. But we should also not forget the lessons of people who resisted before us, who resisted successfully before us, okay? And when it comes to resisting militarism and empire, uh, if you look at all the successful movements, they've all had three features in common. The first is that they were independent, 
The second is they're based on solidarity, and the third is they're based on popular struggles, grassroots struggles from below. Okay, so I'll describe very briefly what I mean by each of those three. On independence, it's, a, it's an unfortunate fact that Donald Trump did not come from nowhere. The first systematic attempt to write laws that targeted Arabs and Muslims actually happened in the 1990s under Bill Clinton. There was uh, something called the secret evidence law under which immigrants uh, could be deported from this country on the basis of evidence which they could not see. This law was primarily targeted against Muslims or people from Muslim countries. And it was so hated in the American Muslim community that George Bush actually campaigned against it. And 80% of American Muslims voted for Bush in the 2000 election. Of course, after 9-11, Bush extended these same laws, expanded it, and introduced new ones uh, or new protocols such as NSEERS, which was the first systematic attempt to, to register people from Muslim countries. Okay, this is 15 years before any talk about registering Muslims. Okay, this is back in 2001, 2002. Along with NSEERS, he also very famously gutted civil liberties in the name of fighting the war on terror. It's only because he did those things and Clinton did those things before that when Barack Obama took power in 2008, that he was able to extend those laws and add new ones, such as the nationwide suspicious activities database, under which many, many people of Muslim or Arab, Arabs or Muslims were, were rounded up were accused of ridiculous things. They were, they were detained for things like taking selfies and, and whatnot. In addition to that, um, he expanded the, the national security state, expanded the drone program, and took the war on terror, which is Bush's policy, and made it into a permanent state of being. And it's only because of that, it's only because of all of those policies that came before, it's only because of the dog whistle politics around the questions of Islam, it's only because of institutionalizing Islamophobia by three administrations that we could come to a point in 2016 where a man can stand for president and openly call for banning Muslims. And so... So we need to resist Trump but we also need to resist a system that makes a Donald Trump possible. And that means, that means main, allying with any, everybody who's on our side, but maintaining independence from the liberal establishment that aided and abetted this calamity from the very beginning. That's independence. I'd like to talk about the second point, which is solidarity. Now, I mentioned that the world is divided into spheres of influence. The United States is, isn't the only imperial power. There's Russia, there's China. And again and again, it's ordinary people who get caught in between these major powers. And that means that for, for solidarity, we should always have solidarity with people and never with states. So that means, for example, solidarity with the people of Bahrain, who last week and this week have been protesting a brutal dictatorship which is being backed by Saudi Arabia and the United States. It means solidarity with people in Yemen who've been suffering through an incredibly devastating war. A war that's killed 10,000 people with American-made bombs. And it means solidarity with the people of Syria who've been resisting people in Syria who've been resisting a genocidal dictator who is backed by Russian imperialism. 
So solidarity with people, never with states. And finally, I'm just gonna end, I'm just gonna end with um, the form the resistance should take, that I think, uh, that, and, and you know, Donald Trump's slogan, as we all know, is make America great again. And um, I'm sure Kianga will probably talk about how for m most people, most of the time, America was never really that great. Right? But, but look, it, it is undeniable that Amer life in America was actually better in many respects, in many fundamental respects, a generation or two ago than it was today. Okay? Especially for some basic freedoms and civil liberties that have been steadily been eroding over the last three or four decades. So I just want to take a moment to, to acknowledge and to thank those brave men and women who fought for our freedoms. Uh, these are freedoms that we tend to take for granted, but as the saying goes, freedom is not free. Uh, and, and these are people like uh, Clara Lemick, who all the way back in 1909, uh, together with 20,000 female garment workers, went on strike against sweatshop conditions. And, and launched a movement that eventually led to the end of sweatshop labor, so that people, generations after her, can enjoy the basic freedom of having humane work conditions. Or people like uh, the activists in the Montgomery bus boycott, not just Rosa Parks, but, but all of the activists. A lot of people don't know that the bus boycott actually lasted for 381 days. Okay, 381 days just so black people could have the basic freedom of sitting where they chose on a bus. And the point of all this is that a single protest as important as they are, a single protest has never changed anything, okay? But the social movements that link protest, that is the lifeblood of resistance. Okay. That is the only thing, ultimately, that's ever changed anything. And, and by that I mean civil disobedience, boycotts, sit-ins, prison solidarity networks, abortion funds, sanctuary spaces, all of it, all of it. All of it because resistance, resistance isn't a moment, resistance isn't a state of mind. Resistance is a tapestry which is collective and enduring. It's so enduring that the status quo cannot sleep at night. In the, in, at the height of the Vietnam War, the height of the Vietnam War, when LBJ was, was campaigning, every place that he went, every public appearance he made, there were protests and sit-ins to the point where he couldn't make public appearances anymore. And it was in the context of a public opinion quickly turning against him, and he decided not to run for re-election. That is what resistance looks like, and that is what we need. Thank you. Our next speaker is uh, Jeremy Scahill. And Jeremy is a founding editor of The Intercept, uh, a, great, a great publication which really, really was, was vital, especially during the presidential campaign and the Democratic um, you know, primaries. Um, 
it along with Jacobin were basically the only publications reading, and, and Workers Vanguard. Um, but he, 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 I, I was like, you know, that had an audience. There was like five people over there. That's that's it. Um, uh, he's an investigative reporter, a war correspondent, and the author of the international best-selling books, uh, Dirty Wars. The world is a battlefield, and Blackwater, the rise of the world's most powerful mercenary army, both of which are on sale. Uh, he's reported from Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, Nigeria, the former Yugoslavia, and elsewhere across the globe. Scahill has served as the national security correspondent for the nation and democracy now. His work has also sparked several congressional investigations and won some of journalism's highest honors. He was twice awarded the prestigious George Polk Award in 1998 for foreign reporting and in 2008 for Blackwater. Scahill is also the producer and writer of the award-winning film Dirty Wars, which premiered at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival and was nominated for an Academy Award. Thank you. I brought a rubber bullet that I picked up after getting shot at today. Um, I feel like I'm going through my second early 20s. Like I was in Seattle in 99, and then I'm out there with, uh, you know, <laughs> it's been a while since I've, I've been there. I, and now that I'm getting old, I'm wearing contacts, and tear gas and contacts don't match, so I'm, uh, you know, my apologies. Um, I have to say, I always feel like a fucking schmuck when I speak at an event with Naomi Klein because she's always so well prepared, and I come in with like something I scribbled on a part of a napkin. Um, <laughs> Anyway, but, but uh, how brilliant uh, are the people here tonight and, and the experience that they bring. And, you know, I always think it's hilarious when Anand Gopal speaks and they, the first thing they say is that he was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> Sorry, punks, he's on our side now. And the only reason I'm here tonight is because Lee Greenwood and Tony Orlando were not available. Um, but I did have a run-in with John Voigt today. Um, I, I'm not kidding. Uh, we, were, we, were, we were just outside of where the throngs of uh, Make America Great posse was coming out, and uh, I noticed John Voigt over by the Porter Johns, uh, which is kind of like appropriate. I'm like, wow, this would be an amazing picture. So uh, we went over there, and... Um, and I was trying to think of like, he was like with his, he had like this weird security detail with him. Um, not that he really needs security. I mean, maybe from his own daughter, Angelina Jolie, like she would come and be like, ah. um, but I went, sorry. Uh, but I, you know, so I'm just thinking like, what do you even ask a turd like that? So I, but I go up to him and I, I said, oh, uh, Mr. Boyd, excuse me, I'm, uh, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And he said, well, where are you from? And I said, I'm from The Intercept. And he said, well, what's The Intercept? And I said, um, oh, you know, it's an online news organization. He goes, well, wh which side? <laughs> this is how they all think. Um, and I said, well, you know, actually, Donald Trump tweeted one of our, our links once, and, uh, which is true, he did. Um, and he said, well, did he tweet it in a good way or a bad way? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, 
you know, I, I, I think he, you know, we were very critical of the Democrats. I think he, he tweeted in a good way. And John Voight then goes into some weird zone where I thought, like, if I'm, like, in some weird flashback of deliverance of his, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> so, but then he grabs me by the coat and starts, like, flailing me around. And I'm like, well, I don't know who this is weirder for, you or me. And he's like, I finally found you, the critical press. And I think he really thought that, like, I, like he was, like, talking to someone from, like, Breitbarters. I don't know. It was some weird <laughs> thing. So I'm like, okay, but I, okay. So after our little weird thing that he, and it was like one of those, I mean, I'm not a TV person, but it was one of those things that, a scene that went on a little too long. Like, he was a little too into my chest. Um, I mean, who is it? No, uh, but... <laughs> But anyway, so, he, so he, he's like grabbing on me. And I said, but I just want to ask you, why do you support Donald Trump? Um, and, and he says, well, what do you mean? He's our president. And I'm like, well, okay, as of like an hour ago, he's the president, but why do you uh, uh, support Donald Trump? And he says, are you an American? <laughs> so, uh, oh, okay, yes. And he's like, well, because he's our president. And I said, no, I know, but you supported him before he was the president. So what issues uh, do you support him on? And he says, well, did you hear his speech? And I said, yes. And he said, well, all of that. And I said, well, let me ask you, do you support uh, a Muslim registry? And all of a sudden, the tone of the entire thing changes. And he says, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to answer uh, questions for your news or organization. <laughs> and I said, well, we're supposed to have a free press. Meanwhile, security now, they start to like shove me. Um, and then I said, you know, we're a country founded by uh, immigrants. Uh, what do you think of Trump's idea to do these mass deportations? And the security at this point is accusing me of impeding poor John Voight's way, and they're shoving me. And you can watch the whole thing online. But the point is that he, he basically said, I don't want to have to answer any questions about why I support this racist, bigot, xenophobe. I just want to be the token celebrity that Donald Trump could somehow scrape up and, and put out here. And then with that, they kind of like, you know, shutter him away with his people swearing at me. Um, but that such is the nature of uh, Republican Hollywood these days, you know, the, the evil conservatives lurking in Hollywood. Uh, today in the streets, I'm sure people saw this, but, you know, there was, even before uh, anyone smashed a car or broke a window, uh, there was this paramilitarized presence of so-called law enforcement on the streets. And this is something that uh, we now have all been groomed as a society to sort of accept as the new reality in this country. And we saw it in a very vivid, visceral way in Ferguson uh, when ordinary people, and it was overwhelmingly ordinary people, primarily uh, young African Americans and other people of color who went into the streets to protest the killing of yet another black man in this country. And they are then facing down against uh, a paramilitarized slash militarized so-called police force. Now, this is not just a, uh, a sort of coincidence of history or some kind of internal escalation on the part of local law enforcement agencies around the country. There is an actual program through the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security uh, that sells and provides military gear to state, local, and some other federal law enforcement agencies that was used in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan or that the military has decided that they don't need anymore because they're getting upgrades. And so they're uh, providing their armored vehicles, their tactical gear to local, state, 
law enforcement agencies so that even rank and file police officers now look like some swelled up RoboCop version of a, of a SWAT team. And we see that now in the streets at almost every demonstration you go to where you have these police forces that are basically stormtroopers. And now with Donald Trump as president, they actually may be literal stormtroopers in this country. And I don't, I don't say that jokingly because if you, if you look at what Donald Trump did, uh, among his first acts in office was to take down the LGBTQ section of President Obama's website, to take down the climate change uh, part of President Obama's uh, website. And I'm gonna have some words for President Obama in a moment, but it, it gives you a sense of how far removed we are from the values that exist in this room with the man that is running the show now uh, in the United States. He, he said that he was ready on day four, that he was gonna uh, start on Monday as president of the United States, but now we find out he's going to the CIA uh, tomorrow. And, and this, this business about there being a rift between Trump and the CIA, even though Trump uh, compared the CIA to Nazis, there isn't going to be a rift. This, there is going to be the sameness uh, of violence uh, in the Trump administration as we saw in the Obama administration and the Bush administration before it, but with added very terrifying, frightening dimensions. I want to back up for one moment and just say this. One of the most shameful legacies that President Obama leaves this country is that he used his legitimacy in the eyes of so many liberals to try to normalize the institution of assassination as a central component of U.S. foreign policy. Now, assassination has been a central component of U.S. foreign policy uh, since the first Native people were massacred in this country. But, but, what, but what President Obama, Mr. Nobel Peace Prize winning constitutional law scholar has done is to create a, a large stage of legitimacy for Donald Trump, and I say legitimacy within the two-party system, for Donald Trump to come in and say, I'm allowed to assassinate even American citizens who haven't been charged with a crime, even if they're not posing an imminent threat to the lives of, of, of any Americans, and even if they're not on a declared battlefield, that drone warfare should be expanded, not limited, that the president does not have to uh, have any effective judicial or legislative oversight to a secret process of putting people on a kill list and then having it run all the way through his chain of command and then signing death warrants that amount to the President of the United States serving as an emperor, where he is the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and ultimately the executioner by proxy of, of drones that will then be used to strike and kill people uh, across the globe. We don't even know how many people they've killed through this assassination program that President Obama has expanded since the era of George W. Bush. I think it's a wonderful thing that Chelsea Manning is going to be a free woman in May. But let's talk real for a moment. She should have had a full pardon. She should have been released yesterday. She shouldn't have been tortured for seven years. She shouldn't have been vilified as a traitor. She should have been celebrated and given the prize that Obama didn't deserve in Oslo.
If there is an American who was deserving of the Nobel Peace Prize, it was Chelsea Manning. I sincerely am thankful that President Obama commuted her sentence. I don't think we could have gotten better than that from this particular president. And for that, I think there is a limited form of credit that is deserved. But at the same time, yes, I have a lot of qualifiers for that, but having, having reported on WikiLeaks, uh, having followed and advocated uh, for Chelsea Manning, uh, any path that leads to her freedom, I think is worthy of our celebration, while at the same time realizing that Obama was the one who was president throughout the duration of her torture and imprisonment. But I will say this, at the same time that Obama uh, took steps that will uh, result in Chelsea Manning being a free woman, he sentenced Leonard Peltier to death by not pardoning or commuting the sentence of Leonard Peltier, who has languished in prison for decades. And I believe that Leonard Peltier is innocent of the crimes that he was convicted of, of killing those two FBI agents, and I think he should be freed immediately. Now, I only have, I only have a couple of, of, of minutes, and I do want to talk about the fascism that we are facing now in this country, uh, but I do think it's important to talk about how we got to the place we are with Trump without ignoring the role that the Democrats play, because there's a deep lesson I'm going to talk about in a moment from this era that we are now entering that has to do with the two-party system in this country. Donald Trump has assembled a cabal of people in his cabinet that are not just the Rex Tillersons of the oil industry who are now directly in charge of so-called U.S. diplomacy, that you have a half-literate oil man posing as energy secretary, that you have Goldman Sachs taking uh, most of the rest of the posts in that administration. But you have Betsy DeVos, who was named as the Education Secretary. Now, Betsy DeVos is one of the wealthiest people ever to hold a cabinet position in this country. In fact, the first 17 people that Trump named were wealthier than 43% of the American population's incomes combined. Betsy DeVos is a radical privatization activist. She's a Christian supremacist. She has, through her family foundation, supported gay conversion therapy. They've given uh, money to some of the most hateful anti-LGBTQ uh, groups uh, on this planet, including Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council, one of which was deemed a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. But among all of those things, there's an additional layer to her uh, vicious nature, and that is that she is the sister of Eric Prince the founder of the Blackwater Mercenary Company. Eric Prince, while his sister is up for a public nomination in the cabinet of Donald Trump, and I hope the Democrats somehow find even a minuscule amount of spine to stop this, her brother Eric Prince is a secret advisor to Donald Trump where he's advocating the return to a Phoenix program uh, style assassination ring to be run by the Central Intelligence Agency. And for those of you that don't have gray in your beard or your hair, the Phoenix program in Vietnam was a mass murder operation coordinated by the CIA where torture and murder were at the center of it as part of this secret, not so secret U.S. policy. General Mike Flynn, who is Trump's national security advisor, is a radical Islamophobe and Christian supremacist who 
does not have to be confirmed by the Senate. He was Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal's uh, top deputy at the Joint Special Operations Command when they were murder incorporated under George W. Bush in Iraq and ultimately Afghanistan, then Iraq again, and then Afghanistan, and on and on until Obama empowered them uh, even more. General James Mattis said it's fun to shoot some people, and those some people he was talking about, if you actually read the quote, this is the guy who was just confirmed as defense secretary, he was talking about men in Afghanistan whose identities he didn't know, whose backgrounds he didn't know, but he said it was fun to shoot them because they probably beat their wives. Now, I don't believe anyone should lay a hand uh, on their spouse at all. But since when is it U.S. military policy to extrajudicially execute people based on the presumption that they may be beating their spouse? This is the guy that they've put in charge of the entire U.S. military. And by the way, he had to get an exemption from the United States Senate in order to serve as defense secretary because he was very recently in the military itself. Why does that matter? Because the point is that there's supposed to be some civilian control and oversight of military entities. Trump has a whole circle of generals who represent some of the most right-wing, belligerent, hawkish, torture-loving people within the U.S. national security apparatus. The forces that we are up against right now, my friends, are fascists. And we need to be clear in defining that. There's an analysis that I think is central to understand about segments of the population that voted for Donald Trump, including the people that voted twice for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. But that is, that is an analysis that can inform our organizing going forward, but we are in a red zone right now. We are in an emergency where immigrants are in the crosshairs, where women are in the crosshairs, where gay people are in the uh, crosshairs of an administration that intends to pull the trigger. And anyone who doesn't make it their business every day of their lives to stand on the front lines, holding that line, defending the most vulnerable in our society, should just hold their head in shame because it's all of our responsibility. And in closing, I'll say this. Some people find some hope in Trump's isolationism. They say, oh, well, he was, he's less hawkish than Hillary Clinton would have been. Now, I think we made clear what we thought about Hillary Clinton's war policies. She was an empire politician. She was a corporate Democrat. But let's be clear on one thing. I don't care if a fascist once in a while says something I agree with. No alliance with fascists. No alliance with fascists. Nothing in this country will fundamentally change until we get corporations out of our politics, until we stop allowing legalized bribery, and until we shatter the two-party system that gives us a choice between a corporate Democrat and a fascist minus the little mustache. Thank you very much. Thank you. You know, I, I was only gone for a little bit, but you know, <laughs> um, our, our next speaker, 
Um, traveled a long way. Actually, he was already in DC anyway, but you know, we can pretend like he traveled a long way to be with us. Owen Jones. He's a London-based writer for The Guardian. He's a commentator, activist. He's the author of Chavs, The Demonization of the Working Class, um, and also the author, more recently, of The Establishment. Uh, he writes frequently for The Guardian. Um, and Owen? Friends, well, firstly, what an honour to be invited by Jacobin on this day. <laughs> Blimey, where'd you begin? I don't know about you, I've been aged by the last few months. I look at least 15 years old. Um, <laughs> now, bear with me, by the way, with my Northern English accent. I've already been told it sounds ridiculous, so we will, we will get through this. Now, I'm hearing the knowledge... I'm hearing the knowledge that Americans love Brits sticking their, our noses in their internal political affairs. So I will choose my words carefully. Above all else, I'm here because of one word, and that's solidarity. Because the problems and injustices that we face, they differ in the specifics and in the scale, but the similarities that bind them are striking indeed. The people we are up against are the same. Injustice does not stop at the border, and the struggle against it must not either. Now, friends, in the coming months and the coming years, we're going to have to stand together. And that's the spirit I'm in. I'm standing here today. Now, friends, today is a shock, but it's not a surprise. What did the so-called centrist commentaria expect? That the Western world would be plunged by its ruling elites into the gravest economic crisis since the 1930s, and there would be no political consequences. Discontent is sweeping the Western world, and no wonder. Think of my own country. In my own country, back in Britain, the wealth of the richest 1,000 Britons has more than doubled during one of the greatest economic crises in the modern history of my country, whilst the wages of workers has fallen for the longest period since Queen Victoria sat on the throne of that country back in the 19th century, where most people in poverty are in work and they get up in the morning and they earn their poverty day after day. Where hundreds of thousands of my fellow citizens in one of the richest countries that has ever existed are driven to charities to satisfy the most basic human need of all other than breathing and drinking to eat. Hundreds of thousands of them kids in the one of the richest societies we have ever known, where hundreds of thousands of families are denied, again, that basic right, that basic need, a decent, affordable, comfortable home for them and for their families as well. All of these basic rights. Now, friends, look at this discontent. The form that this discontent takes, it differs. It differs according to the cultural and political and historical context of each country. And we have seen, in part, a politics of hope. And we must not forget that. A wave of optimism driven by desire to build societies run in the interests of the majority, run in the interests of people's needs and hopes and aspirations, rid of societies, rid of exploitation and oppression and racism, challenging the vested interests responsible for the multiple crises that all of us face. For me, the wave is what mattered, however flawed sometimes the surfer has been. But we've seen it. 
We've seen it in ways which has often been breathtakingly inspiring. We saw the Sanders phenomenon here in the United States of America. We saw the Corbyn phenomenon, the Podemos phenomenon as well. But alongside that politics of hope, we've seen the politics of fear, of directing blame for all the economic and social ills that our societies face on jobs, on housing, on wages, on services, away from the bankers, the tax dodgers, the multinational corporations, the immigrants and minorities and those who struggle. And look at that politics of fear. In my own country, an EU referendum that had nothing to do with the European Union at all, but it was about scapegoating immigrants in the most bigoted and disgraceful way imaginable. A campaign of poison that has sent hate crimes hurtling in my country. A Leave campaign which peddled a politics of fear that talked of immigrants as rapists and murderers and criminals. A Leave campaign which led, as I've said, the most poisonous campaign we have seen in my country since World War II. Now, we're talking a lot about trade treaties at the moment, post-Brexit with the United States, and I must apologise for the first major British export of the Trump era, Nigel Farage. <laughs> Where do you begin? Well, you're stuck with him now as well, so we, 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 will, we, will, we will defeat him eventually. But we've seen, not just in my own country, that wave of xenophobia, that fear in France, the National Front, a party that scapegoats immigrants and Muslims, whether it be in the Netherlands, whether it be across Scandinavia, whether it be in Austria, despite the recent defeat of a far-right candidate, but still 46% of people voted for a fascist. And now, the greatest triumph of all for the politics of fear, the assumption of power of Donald Trump in the most powerful nation on earth. Now, there are those who want to reduce Trump's victory in the Electoral College to one factor or another, that it was either simply economic grievance or it was simply backlash against the struggle by African-Americans, by women, by undocumented workers, by LGBTQ people. But in the real world, we don't have to choose. It was both. But there is an inescapable truth. The so-called centrists, the Clinton-Blair axis, if you will. Those who defended the existing order and promised merely to tweak it. They are politically bankrupt. Their unique selling point. Their USP was that we will abandon policies that challenge the status quo, but in exchange for the promise of winning, a promise that died in November. They fail, though, because the existing order it can't work. It won't work. An order that cannot meet the needs and aspirations of the majority. One that enriches a tiny elite as the living standards of millions stagnate or decline, which robs young people of that most precious thing of all, optimism, a sense that their own lot in life will be better than their parents before them. I spoke to a man yesterday in Washington. He was in his 20s. His father had worked in the same parking garage since 1973. His parents had been inspired by Obama. That was the first time both of them had even voted. But since 2008, his father's wages and hours have been cut and his mum's healthcare, the very issue that Obama campaigned on, have gone up. As Pakistani immigrants, they were not won over by Trump. But millions of Americans who struggled were. And the brutal truth is that after eight years of Obama's presidency, the lot of millions of Americans is as bad or worse than it was in 2008. 
Now, friends, in terms of the way ahead, in terms of the way ahead, we've seen for a long time self-described progressives abandon class. Now, the new right, as or the neoliberals, whatever you want to call them, they abhorred the concept of class. They wanted to erase the concept altogether. And this is why. Because it extolled a collectivism, a common shared interest, a sense that we have the same shared interests against those people at the top and they wanted to abolish. Margaret Thatcher, for example, she said that class is a communist concept. It puts people into bundles and sets them against each other. She said worse, so I wouldn't... Let's not even start. <laughs> start. But it isn't so with the new populist right. They've tried to appropriate the politics of class in the most reactionary way possible. They saw the vacuum and they have filled it. Their populism tries to define a working class that is demonized, that's hard done by, by a liberal elite that hates their values, their way of life, everything about them. A new left reborn has to have class, class in all of its diversity, at its very heart, at its very core. Now, we saw it. We saw it with that last infamous political ad of Donald Trump. As one American leftist put it to me, it was half Occupy, half the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. But nonetheless, it cynically and ruthlessly tapped into frustration and anger felt by millions. That a plutocrat who has repeatedly screwed over working Americans, a charlatan, a misogynist, a mediocre, bigot and racist, benefited is perverse, but is still nonetheless true. Now, friends, there are siren voices, and I've heard them, some quiet, some louder than others. And they are saying, and they will say, that this loss in November was because the Democrats were too progressive, that they were too zealous in promoting the rights of women, of the people of colour, of immigrants, and of LGBTQ people. So let us be absolutely clear. There is no path to power, none, that involves throwing under the bus women, people of colour, immigrants or LGBTQ people. None. Zero. A left that does not champion the interests of every oppressed group, of every exploited and subjugated group, that does not challenge racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia in all its forms, is no left at all. Whatever you call. Whether you call the majority the working class or more commonly in this country the middle class, whatever you call them. They are the most diverse section of the entire country. They are women and men, they are white and black, they are born here and across the country's borders. They are LGBTQ and they are straight. And they should not be seen as being in competition with each other. This is the wealthiest nation that has ever existed on the face of this planet. It has abundant wealth beyond all of the imaginations of all of us in this room. It has the power to cure this country of its multiple economic and social ills, to build affordable and comfortable housing for every single American, to provide a publicly run healthcare system that works for Americans, not the corporations, to offer a world-class education system that does not saddle the next generation with debt, to create the skilled, decent, 
properly paid jobs of the future, to abolish the social ills of poverty and insecurity, to ensure no American child lies awake at night with a hungry stomach and no American parent lies awake at night because of their unpaid bills, and to overcome a climate crisis that, as Naomi Klein says, poses an existential threat to all of humanity. The question, the question that we all face is in whose hands is this wealth? The wealth that is created as a collective effort by all of the American people, in whose hands is that wealth concentrated? Now, friends, the American people, as in Britain, as in Spain, as across Europe and so much of the world, are angry and they have the right to be. And we have to make it absolutely clear in all of our countries that it wasn't the immigrants from Poland or Lithuania or Mexico or Pakistan who clean the offices, who sweep the streets, who tend to the sick, who educate our children, who plunged this and all of our countries into disasters. It was the banks of Wall Street and the city of London. It wasn't those immigrants. It wasn't those immigrants who avoid tax on an industrial scale. It was the Donald Trump class. It wasn't those immigrants who pay workers poverty wages on which they cannot afford to live. It was the likes of the people who stuffed the new president's cabinet. On all sides of the Atlantic, we need a new progressive populism, one that directs people's anger upwards at those at the top, the people with power who are really responsible for all of the crises that we face, that offers a compelling and coherent vision of how society can be. There will be some now, and there are, as I've said, who advocate lurching onto Trump's agenda, surrendering and capitulating. For all of our sakes, don't let them. This president is not strong. He is weak. He lost the popular vote. He's the least popular president in history. His party is divided. And friends, the future of your own country, but not just your country, of Europe and the world will depend in part on the decisions made by people in this very room, no pressure. <laughs> and in doing so, to wrap up, you can draw on the great history that exists in this country of those people who stood up against injustice, who stood up against tyranny, like the suffragettes who we now laud as secular saints and make films about celebrating that in their time were hated and reviled and dragged from protest by police officers and thrown in cells with tubes forced down their noses. Whether it be those in the civil rights movement who fought the tyranny of racism, whether it be those in the labour movement who fought for the rights of working people who gave the world the slogan, don't mourn, organise. Whether it be the LGBTQ movement, the likes of Harvey Milk who told us, I know you cannot live on hope alone, but without it, life is not worth living. The anti-war movement that stood and continues to stand against the violence of American foreign policy. All the rights and gains we have, they're never given to us as acts of charity and generosity by the powerful. They are won by the struggle and sacrifice of people from below. The people in this room, your mothers, your fathers, your grandmothers, your grandfathers, your ancestors before them. 
We stand on the shoulders of giants. Everything we have, we owe to the struggle and determination and resilience of the people who had the courage to stand up to injustice. That is a great tradition, one all of us should be proud of, whatever country in which we live. So in the coming months and the coming years, let's stand together. Let's have the same resilience and courage that our ancestors showed before us. And as we do so, we will not just defeat the likes of the Donald Trumps and the Nigel Farages and the Marine Le Pens and all the other far-right populists, but we will build a new society. A society run in the interests of the majority. A society free of oppression and exploitation and racism. A society that is sustainable. That is our goal. And if we stand together, if we fight together, we will win this battle together. Solidarity. So I was going to wait for things to go, uh, to make sure things went smoothly before I thanked them. But before I go on, I want to thank um, Annette Verso, Anthony at Haymarket, and Jason at, at Jacobin, especially for all their work putting on the event. And I want to introduce our next guest, or our final speaker, uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. who's an assistant professor at Princeton's Uni University Center for African American Studies and the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And, and this book is so good, it's been reprinted a half dozen times already and it just came out last year. Um, Donald Trump is gonna start taking credit for all the printing jobs that it's keeping in the US of A. The book is an excellent examination of the history and politics of black America and the development of the social movement Black Lives Matter in response to police violence. Really do check it out. And of course, you could buy the books downstairs, but the book signings are all um, upstairs. And all the authors will be signing books for around 20 minutes. Thank you. Donald Trump has been inaugurated as the 45th President of the United States. The shock and disbelief that greeted his election more than two months ago must now give way to def Part of that pivot demands that we understand how we got here in the first place, but more importantly, how we move forward. In fact, understanding what happened in the election is absolutely necessary to understanding what happens next. Many have commented upon Trump's victory in a way that I would describe as simplistic. The best example of this, I think, is when Van Jones characterized Trump's election as revenge or a white lash against black voters who overwhelmingly voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012. 
I don't believe we can reduce the election outcomes to White's collective revenge for the presidency of Barack Obama. It is an assessment that avoids many inconvenient truths about the Democratic Party while dramatically overstating the depth of support for Trump and his politics across the country. The first problem with this narrative, aside from the fact that tens of millions of white people voted for Obama twice, is that it promotes a mistaken story that African Americans benefited from the presidency of Barack Obama. And that those supposed benefits have come at the expense of ordinary white people. The genuine fear and disgust of Trump has contributed to intense revisionism and mythology when it comes to the record of Barack Obama. And while we can all recognize the power of symbolism and even subscribe to the notion that there was value in the election of an African-American to the highest office in a nation born and built on the backs of enslaved black labor, we should not let that acknowledgement cloud our ability to think clearly and tell the truth. Obama's presidency was not a gift to black people. It represented the painful continuity of racism, discrimination, and inequality that has always been at the center of black life in America. Eight years later, black unemployment remains twice the rate of whites. Eight years later, 38% of black children continue to live below the official poverty line. Eight years later, a shocking 55% of black workers, mostly black women, make under $15 an hour. It was precisely the inability of the Obama administration to improve the conditions of ordinary black people's lives that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement in the first place. The second problem with the white lash story is that it reduces any critique of the last eight years to a racist backlash. It is similar to the argument that Hillary Clinton's campaign failed centrally because of sexism. Now, we certainly cannot downplay the extent to which racism and sexism played a critical role in Trump's success. We have seen how Trump's rise has unleashed violent white supremacists and given them the confidence to organize out in the open. There were well over a thousand cases of hate crimes reported in the month after the presidential election. But if we only understand Trump's success in terms of racial resentment and white lash, then we make wrong assumptions about a generalized right-wing sweep across the United States with white people universally lining up behind Trump waiting to receive their marching orders. But that perception clashes violently with markers of public opinion. 58% of Americans think Obamacare should be replaced with federally funded health care for all. Sixty. 
56% of Americans support raising the minimum wage to at least $10. 59% support raising it to $12. 48% support raising it to $15, which is an idea that has been demonized by Republicans and Democrats alike. 61% of Americans say the rich pay too little in taxes, which is up from 52% a year ago. 69% of Americans believe that providing affordable housing is important. 63% of Americans say money and wealth distribution is unfair. 50% of whites say blacks are treated less fairly by police than whites. And 50% of whites think the country still has work to do for blacks to achieve equal rights with whites. This is hardly the portrait of a right-wing America. So how do we square this with the election? We must begin with the fact that tens of millions of Americans did not bother to vote. There are 238 million voters in the United States. And of that number, 60 million of them voted for Trump. And even among the five, uh, that number, 5% of people who voted for him said he was unfit to be president. On its own, yes, that is 60 million people who voted for a vile, racist, and sexual predator. But in the wider context, it means that one in four eligible voters chose Trump. That is hardly representative of what white people think. And that is the other part of the story, that literally tens of millions of voters decided not to vote at all. The media and other political operatives describe the decision not to vote as apathy. It is an easy description that requires little thought or analysis of the problem within electoral politics that creates so little confidence and so much indifference, even when it appears that so much is at stake. One need look no further than the Democratic Party to fully understand the problem. Since the shock of the election, the Democrats have blamed their losses on Fox News, the FBI, bad messaging, and the Russians. But there is virtually no reckoning with the political shortcomings of the party. There is no reckoning with how the party... There is no reckoning with how the party that purports to be a party of the people consistently fails to connect with the basic ideas of fairness and justice that are at the core of those statistics that I read earlier. But this lack of connection is not a flaw in messaging. It is the product of a party that fully embraces the logic of neoliberalism and the political status quo. This is why Hillary Clinton ran a campaign focused on Trump's abhorrent behavior as opposed to a positive campaign on what Democrats could do to transform the lives of ordinary people. But it was impossible for Clinton to argue that her party would deliver change and break the grip of the political order that privileges the rich and powerful when it was her party that has been in power for the last eight years. Clinton promised to be the third term of Obama, failing to realize that for millions of voters, two terms was enough.
Eight years ago, Obama ran on the promise of hope and change. But with big expectations and big hope come even bigger disappointment when you fail to deliver. It is absolutely true that the Republicans have been obstinate, recalcitrant, and opposed to giving Obama anything. It speaks to the complete dysfunction of our political system. But it is not just the obstinacy of the GOP that has been the problem. It was also the conservative priorities of Obama's political agenda. If you embrace the market, privatization, and the norms of neoliberalism, then there is only so much change that can be expected from your administration. Obama raised everyone's hopes but could not deliver, not just because the Republicans, not just because of the Republicans, but also because of this constrained political agenda of the Democratic Party. In other words, we cannot understand the rise of Trump and Trumpism by only looking at what the Republicans have done. We must also understand it in terms of what the Democratic Party has not done. Embedded inside of every right-wing backlash is the failure of the liberal establishment to deliver a better way. The lesser evil always paves the way for the greater evil. Where Obama used the machinery of deportations to banish 2.5 million people from the United States, it has set the way for Trump to do so in a more emboldened way. Where the Obama administration embraced the values of choice and privatization and gutting public education, Trump will do so in, a more, in an even more fantastical way that looks to finish the job of killing public education. The political conservatism of the Democrats contributes more generally to liberal paralysis when the right does the same things but on a much larger scale. We have to ask, why is it that the largest action being planned this weekend is organized by women who initially didn't even consider themselves activists or didn't want to call the march a protest while some of the largest organizations in the country are still walking around shell-shocked and completely unprepared to challenge Trump. And these are the same organizations who tell us that we must support the Democratic Party no matter what to stop the evil, maniacal Republican Party. The Democratic establishment expects poor and working-class people to suffer in silence as long as they keep voting Democrat. Trump will be a disaster for the working class, make no mistake about it. But the Democrats have been a disaster in slow motion as inequality and injustices grow. Do nothing but tell us to wait and hope for things to be different. And for those who get tired of being lied to and decide that they don't want to continue to vote for what they don't want, they are vilified. This is the case when liberals blame depressed black voter turnout for the election results. But it is also true when liberals lash out at working class white people for, quote, voting against their interests. 
as if somehow voting for the neoliberal, albeit civil and well-mannered politics of the Democratic Party are in the interest of the working class. are never on the ballot in our elections. When our political choices are constrained within the parameters of the existing two-party system, voter discontent, voter discontent can go in one of three places, your party, the other party, or no party at all. But if your conclusion that ordinary people are either backward or apathetic because of their relative disinterest in the presidential election, then you are truly missing what is happening in this country. There is deep anger and disgust with the political status quo in the United States. The Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter, the heroic pipeline struggles in North Dakota, and the... And the 13 million people who voted for Bernie Sanders have unearthed that to the world. When systemic problems become too large to ignore, when socialists start gaining millions of votes, for example, or when black people riot and rebel in the streets, the news media is forced to provide some explanation. And in doing so, they typically give us fractured glimpses of reality. But, do they, but, they piece, but rarely do they piece together the entire picture. Consider four separate news stories from last year. The first is the continuing crisis of the opioid addiction, uh, opioid addiction crisis in this country. There are two million people addicted to opioids in the United States, a, dispropor a disproportionate number of whom are white. From 2009 to 2014, almost half a million people have died from opioid overdoses, a fourfold increase since 1999. A second story, briefly in the news, reported on the decline in life expectancy for white women. In an un it is unprecedented for life expectancy to reverse in a so-called first world country. In the United States peer countries, life expectancy is actually growing. Why is life expectancy for working class white women in decline? Drug overdose, suicide, and alcohol abuse. In Chicago, the story has been the rise in shootings and murder, murders in the city's working class black neighborhoods. In 2016, there were 4,379 people shot in Chicago and 797 people killed. The overwhelming majority of both were African American. The news media's nonsensical explanations for the violence include retaliation. But that is only matched by the nonsense offered by elected officials, which includes the absence of role models and poor parenting. What is almost never offered as at least part of the answer is how Chicago has the highest black unemployment rate of the nation's five largest cities at 
that nearly half of black men aged 20 to 24 in Chicago are neither in school or employed. That Chicago has the third highest poverty rate of large cities in the U.S. And that it is the most segregated city in the country. Finally, there is the story of the shrinking, the so-called shrinking middle class. In the 1970s, 61% of Americans fell into that vague but stable category. Today, that number has fallen to 50%. It is driven by the growing wealth inequality that exists in this country. In the last year alone, the 1% saw their income rise by 7%, and the 0.1% saw their income rise by 9%. In general, the richest 20% of U.S. households own 84% of the wealth in this country, while the bottom 40% own less than 1%. The media would have us believe that this is a story primarily about the Rust Belt and disgruntled white workers. In fact, it is also a story about 240,000 black homeowners who lost their houses to foreclosure in the last eight years. It is also a story about urban school closures and the decimation of employment for black educators. Thousands of black teachers have been fired in the last decade. These four prominent stories reported on over the last several years are often told separately, reinforcing the perception that different groups of ordinary people in this country live in their own world and have experiences that are wholly separate from each other. But what would happen if we put these stories together and told them as a single narrative about life in this country? If we told them together it could allow us to see that the anxieties, stresses, confusions, and frustrations about life in the world today are not owned by one group, but are shared by many. It would not... It would not tell us that everyone suffers the same oppression. But it would allow us to see that even if we don't experience a particular kind of oppression, every working person in this country is going through something. Everyone is trying to figure out how to survive, and many are failing. If we put these stories together, we would gain more insight into how ordinary white people have as much stake in the fight for a different kind of society as anyone else. We wouldn't, so casually, we wouldn't so casually dismiss their suffering as privilege because they do not suffer as much as black and brown people in this country. In fact, we might find that the privileges of white skin run very thin in a country where 19 million white people languish in poverty. Apparently, the wages of whiteness are not so great that they can stop millions of ordinary white people from literally drinking and drugging themselves to death to escape the despair of living in this so-called greatest country on earth. If we put these, if we put these separate stories into a single story, we could make better sense of why socialism is rising in popularity. 
Why people, why people have taken to the streets over the last six years to protest the growing racial and economic inequality. There are 400 billionaires in this country. They are the reason why there are 47 million poor people. You cannot have untold, obscene wealth unless you have untold, obscene poverty. That is the law of the so-called free market. And how does this parasitic 1% of the population hold on to their wealth when we are so many? Racism, immigrant bashing, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, nationalism. They get us to fight each other while they hoard their wealth. And they keep our stories separate from each other so that we never understand the entire story, only our particular part of it. But knowledge alone of the existence of racism, inequality, poverty, and injustice does not equip our side with the political tools needed to fight the battles of today or fight for a socialist future. We need struggle, but we also need politics because we must contend with a political establishment that wants to lower our expectations to believe that this existing society is the best that we can expect from humanity. Hillary Clinton ran a campaign of low expectations, a campaign that cynically pivoted around the notion that ordinary people shouldn't ask for too much. Bernie Sanders, for all the excitement that his campaign generated, for rightly demanding more, his commitment to remaining in the Democratic Party then threatens to neuter his political revolution. Because expecting the Democratic Party to fight for the democratic redistribution of wealth and resources in this country is like expecting to squeeze orange juice out of an apple. It is impossible. No, we must build independent organizations and political parties that are not connected to the Democratic Party or that rise and fall with each electoral cycle. We have to build organizations that are democratic, multiracial, and militant with a foundation in solidarity. Solidarity meaning that even if you don't experience a particular oppression, it doesn't matter because you understand that as ordinary people, our fates are tied together and that one group's liberation is dependent on the liberation of all the oppressed and exploited. Another world is possible. Another United States is possible, but only if we organize and fight for it. In closing, I want to quote from a note that was taped to the front door of my son Ellison's daycare center this morning. 
It said simply, do not despair, eyes wide open, strengthen numbers, keep the faith, and stay strong. Thank you. Thank you.